Okay, guys, it's a great couple for us to have a Talmud with us. Mix the Shvachot Even mix the Shvachot, it's going to sound like Kula Shvachot. That itself is a big Shavach. Um, there's a person who's a Rosh Hashiva for all year. Just listen to this resume. Parshas for Yishlach. I mean, reading about Yaakov Avinu. So Avram had his area, and Yitzchak had his kochos. But Yaakov was a great harmonizer. In Kabbalah, that's the trait known as Teferis. Take a lot of different traits and harmonize them. So we have a shtickle Yaakov face. Someone who harmonizes a lot. He's a Rosh Hashiva Wayu, and a lot of our Talmudim have studied with him and learned with him. He's a professor in Sai Sims, but that's just the beginning of the resume. He's a Rav in a shul in, um, in New Jersey, North New Jersey. He's also a very, very prolific author, both of Lambdas and Hebrew and high-level English Torah, and in particular, trying to bring high-level nuanced thinking to the world of Menodim Lechaber, which t- typically gets very, very incohate, just be a good person, love your neighbor, but we try to be as precise and as rigorous in defining the halachas of Menodim Lechaber as we are about Tzoros and Regel and Shein, right? no difference, all the word of Menodim so he's bringing a lot of Baruch Hashem, a lot of kochos, and a lot of ideas of Torah to us. I just want to say two things about him personally. A lot of times guys go back to YU and they say, what type of Rebbe should I look for? And they all assume, well, how can I find the person who's exactly my and exactly like me, exactly? What's more important, and even more important than the person who's exactly your frequency, is to find Rabbanim in life who are nuanced, subtle, sophisticated, respectful thinkers. So, you know, this is my derf, this is your derf, these are the strands, these are... A lot of people are binary, and especially at this age, binary can be very, very, unfortunately, imbalancing. The people are subtle and nuanced, and everybody, is an extremely, extremely nuanced and rich dream. We'll see today, that's why so many of them to meet him, love him, and learn with him. But most importantly, and my children make fun of me all the time, the best shabbat you can give anyone, and keep this the rest of your life, is that person, without that person is a nice and a good person. Whatever you accomplish in life, just be a nice and a good person, and want to introduce a nice, good person, I would tell them, please, and to give you someone who's published somebody swearing from me, so I'll say, look and see the latest of the latest Thank you so much for tagging. It was overly, very much overly gracious words. words these words are true. Mm-hmm. But those words were over the grace. But thank you so, so much. And it's such a pleasure to be here, despite the circumstances overall. But to be here in Yeshiva is a tremendous covenant to see so many familiar faces and to be able to spend a few moments is a special opportunity. And speaking with my dear friend, Rabbi Gottlieb, who I know is not here right now, but we talked a little bit about what to speak about. And mentioned, of course, that the Inyanim of the war are on everyone's mind, but I know also that you've heard a lot about that, and that he's spoken about that with you, he told me a little bit about what he's spoken about, so due to that concern, I'm going to try to talk broadly about some of these topics, and try to move from topic to topic, so to minimize the possibility that I'm repeating things that you've heard already, I probably will do a little bit, but hopefully if we go from one topic to the next within this broader subject, Hopefully, we'll have a chance of maybe saying one or two things that weren't covered before, and maybe from a little bit of a different perspective. We'll start with something which I think is uh, somewhat of a different subject related to this overall matzav. And it was contacted a few weeks ago by a journalist from a prominent national publication who was trying to understand what was going on here in Israel that they were seeing these pictures of weddings. And in the weddings, the Hassan was often in army uniforms. Sometimes the Kala was also. The weddings sometimes were taking place on military bases or just moments before being shipped off to a military base. And what's going on with that? Is that something that Jewish law requires? Is that because once you set a date, what the reporter was thinking is that once you set a date, you're not allowed to move it for anything? Is there some other kind of limitation? What exactly is going on? This is clearly not anyone's dream wedding. This is clearly not what anyone envisions when they look to getting married. So if this is what's going on all around you, so then why rush to get married now? Why can't they wait till later? 
And in that context, she also asked the question, which is also highly relevant to understanding a little bit of the background, what happens when, as is so sadly the case nowadays, you have to choose between a funeral and a wedding? What takes priority? What is it that's going to come first? And try to convey a little bit that there is clearly a powerful desire here to make a statement, and that that statement also does root itself in halachic sources and in some discussions in the Talmud, but that also it's not so cut and dry exactly what the rule is, especially when you ask the question of what takes priority, a wedding or a funeral. And in considering a little bit some of the nuances of the debate, it helps us to understand a little bit some, some of the sensitivities, some of the issues that are emerging from these <laughs> attitudes. So we know that there is a Gemara in the beginning of Ksubis, on Daf Gimel Beis, which talks about the need to balance these emotions sometimes. The Gemara talks about a very tragic situation where you have a wedding that is already planned beyond the point of no return financially. Everything is already out there and nothing can be put back. There's no possibility of recovering the cost. And the parent of one of the couple passes away, the father of the chassan or the mother of the bride the Gemara talks about. And under those circumstances, we see that the show does go on, that the wedding proceeds despite the fact that one of them has just lost a parent, would otherwise be considered an aninus, and should really be exempt from all mitzvahs, or more so a mitzvah such as marriage. Nonetheless, they are told to proceed. And then, once they do, then the funeral happens after that. And then, after the funeral, so then one would expect that normally it's followed by a shiva. And yet, in this case, the Gemara says that the shiva waits. And that first you have the shava brachos, and only after the shava brachos does the avelus of shiva happen. And there's a discussion in the Rishonim about the halachic mechanism that allows for that. We generally assume that both concepts, Sheva Brachos and Shiva, are Midrabanan, even if they are very old Rabbanans, perhaps going back to Moshe Rabbeinu. But if they're both Midrabanan, so then the assumption is Chazal have the ability to decide how exactly to arrange things, Heim Omru, Heim Omru. But there is a view in the Rishonim that Avelis, at least to some extent, perhaps the first day, is Minhatorah. And if that's the case, what seems to happen here is that the rabbis took a more aggressive stance, and they were actually okir davrman ha-Torah, that's the understanding of the Rashba and the Ran, and that they actually uprooted Torah law here, and they said, despite the fact that from the Torah itself there's an obligation of mourning, nonetheless, that's going to wait until after Shavu Brachas is able to be completed. And there it raises the question of trying to imagine what is going through the minds of this couple to go right from the deathbed of a parent to the chuppah, and then after that to have to delay the shiva experience with all of its emotional catharsis and what it does to help those process what's happening, that has to wait until after a celebration. So how exactly are they expected to feel inside is an important question. We have a picture of the halachic man who's able to have his emotions completely controlled by what the halacha dictates. And we know that in the context of Avelis, the Gemara says that when Yantif comes and cancels a shiva, so we have the language of asi esei derabim, simcha derabim, umavatel Avelis deyachid, that one seems to be expected to sublimate the emotional experience to the halachic demands of the public celebration. And whether that's what's happening here or not, uh, I'm not sure, but there is a place that the halacha gives to allow expression for each of these conflicting emotions that are really happening at the same time. And yet the halacha is saying, okay, here's how they're each going to be able to express themselves in order. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily have the ability to just turn off all of the crying for a week or to just completely control what emotion is going to come out, but to recognize that each does need to have its space and its expression. And the halacha gives a context for all of that. So there is there that discussion about going ahead with the wedding, going ahead with the show, 
even under tragic circumstances. And considering the question, the follow-up question that this journalist was asking about what would happen in terms of one asked to prioritize between the two, so there's another Gemara a little bit later in Suvis, where the Gemara talks about a situation where there's a traffic jam and you have a funeral procession that happens to meet up with a bridal entourage. And the question is, who do we make space for? And there the Gemara says that that we ask the mace, we ask the funeral to wait so that the kala can come first. And the Rishonim explain why that is, because we have a notion that as much as we revere the concept of Kavad HaMes, and as much as we are deeply concerned to be properly respectful in that context, still we assume that Kavad HaChayim takes priority over Kavad HaMes. And that's itself a powerful statement, which I mentioned to that we have this idea that we respect life, ultimately, and that even in the context of the tremendously crucial mandate to honor the dead. Nonetheless, the decision to honor life is going to take priority, and that detail specifically, that we choose the kala to allow her to go first, so that essentially is accepted by everyone, and that would give us the impression, indeed, that that's the policy, that we always choose the wedding we always choose the honor of the living even over the honor of the deceased. So far, so good. Everybody with me? So it sounds like that would be the policy across the board, essentially a statement of we choose to focus on that first and foremost. It's uh, you know, striking the whole notion of Kavad Hames. Shechter sometimes comments that people believe that you can treat someone terribly when they're alive and do whatever you want to them, and it's only after they pass away, all of a sudden there's a new concept that gets developed, they all of a sudden have to worry about their dignity. Now you have a concept of kavod. Kavod hames is something that only develops after a person passes away. And he likes to explain that it's quite the opposite, that we have a notion of kavod habrios that is rooted in the concept of Selim Elohim, that we show honor to human dignity across the board. And it's such a powerful idea that it continues to apply even after the person passes away. And even when they are no longer able to perceive how they're being treated, still that concept of Kavar Abrios extends beyond. But it's not a notion that only begins when the person passes away. So as weighty as the notion of Kavar HaMais is, nonetheless, the concept of Kavar HaChaim and all of the obligations that come along with the wedding celebration and the acknowledgement of that event, all are apparently prioritized in order to make that point. So you would think, okay, so this is apparently our policy, this is our rule, if you have a question as to what comes first, so then perhaps it should be clear that the wedding comes first. But it happens to be that the Rishonim are not all so much in agreement about that, and that that is the view of the Ramban. The Ramban understood that that Gemara is talking across the board and that that is the policy. Ramban wrote a sefer on Avelis called the Torah Sa'adam, where he discusses this, and the other Rishonim quote him, and his commentary to Ksubis. So he takes this position that, indeed, this is the rule, that the wedding takes priority over the funeral, Kavad HaChayim is before Kavad HaMes, and that's what emerges from that Gemara. But the Rambam disagrees among others, but the Rambam took a different view. The Rambam in his Mishnah Torah and Hilchas Evel, so the Rambam notes that there is a Pasuk that seems to indicate otherwise. And it's a little interesting in itself that he doesn't actually quote the exact Pasuk that Chazal point to. He's based himself on rabbinic sources. It's not explicit in the Gemara, like Rambam was com- the Ramban was coming from a Gemara in Subis. Here there are references to a Tosefta and the Evel Rabasi and a Masachas Machos, but they refer to a Pasuk in Koheles, in the seventh parak, Tov Laleches Lebeis Evel Mililaches Lebeis Amishta. It seems to say, and the Chazal seem to take some kind of preference from here, that it is better to attend a house of mourning than it is to go to a party. 
And one could have thought that that meant just any random party, in which case it would be much more easily understood that the priority of the mitzvah involved in Nichem Avelim and everything that surrounds that is going to be a greater priority than enjoying yourself. But it's clear from the context of the application that it means even a party of mitzvah, even a wedding, there is this advantage apparently to going to a house of Avelus. And the Rambam quotes actually the Pasuk, two Pesukim earlier, which is interesting, but the Pasuk has the language of Leiv Chachamim Bebeis Ha'evel, so it's noteworthy that he doesn't actually use the exact same Pasuk that Chazal point to, but the implication that some of these sources give us is that there is a priority to the house of Avelis over the house of celebration, even of a simcha like a wedding. So there seems to be somewhat of a tension between the sources here. So the way the Rambam understands that is that when the Gemara in Ksuba says, my virinus ames b'fnei so that's talking about issues of kavod. That when it comes to showing honor, so yes, that's the rule, that kavod hachayim takes priority over kavod hames. So that was that context of the two processions coming at the same time. So that's the rule, yes. But it's limited to instances of covenant. Hi. Oh, so that's also possibly relevant to why some tilt the equation the other way, that especially when the focus is maybe not the funeral only, but the but the Shiva specifically, so that may actually be part of why some do take the other opinion, because it's not only limited to Kavod HaMes in that situation. So the Rambam is not alone in this, in splitting the policy and saying that it's only for matters of the wedding procession and the funeral procession being in conflict on the road that we have this policy, but for other instances such as attending to their needs, that's how he phrases it. So then we would go the other way, and we would say that we attend to the inyanim surrounding the nifter first. And it seems like he's influenced by these sources in Chazal. And some also do point to the fact that when we're talking about Avelim, as opposed to the nifter, so as you note, Avelim also have Kavrachayim as a component there. So it's noteworthy to ponder a little bit if we're trying to extract an attitude that this Pasuk, which is somewhat well-known, and I'll just uh, quote it in a little bit skipping words, but focusing on the key phrases. So the Pasuk, which says, Tov l'leches l'beis ha'evam l'leches l'beis ha'mishta, ki zeh sof kol ha'adam v'hachai yitain alibo. Again, skipping some words in the middle. But those key phrases, it's a somewhat well-known, often quoted Pasuk, so there are actually a range of interpretations as to what that Pasuk is getting at, and that also tells us a little bit about what the overall message is here and what's being derived. So probably the initial instinct you would have in interpreting that Pasuk, the most intuitive interpretation probably, when it ends, the Hachai is that there is a reminder of one's mortality that one who chooses to go to a house of mourning is confronted with the fact that he's not going to live forever, and that is something that will be valuable for purposes of introspection. And that's what the Gemara Mesachas Bracho says in the first parak, that there was a discussion how one should fight the Yetzirah, and the Gemara gives a number of suggestions, but the final suggestion after learning Torah and after saying Kriyashma so the final suggestion of the Gemara is Yazkir Yom HaMisa. So one should ponder the fact that he is mortal, and that ultimately will keep one focused on what they need to do here. It was a whole debate, you might be familiar with, where Soloveitchik talks about in Halachic Man, between the more Musa-oriented yeshivas and those who weren't ready to focus on that as much, about how that progression goes. Does that mean that that's ideal? to look to that because it's the most powerful way to keep people on the straight and narrow, Yazkir Yom HaMisa, or is that only meant for more extreme situations and that normally Talmud Torah by itself should do it? So that's a historical debate. But the idea that it has that 
focus and that it's able to provide that Musr value. So it seems like that's what the Pasuk is saying. It seems like that's the message here. And therefore, one who chooses to do this is going to have a greater impact on his own neshama by choosing the house of mourning over the Beis Hamishtah. And perhaps, in fact, maybe it's not clear otherwise why, maybe the fact that the Rambam uses a different phrase from a little bit earlier on, but emphasizes that part, Lev Chachamim, Beis Eva, where exactly one's heart should be placed, where exactly one's focus and direction should be, sounds like he is pointing to the impact that it has on the one doing the visiting. And therefore, for that reason, it's the priority. So far, so good. Everybody with me? Make sense? So that's probably the most intuitive interpretation, probably the most likely interpretation that one would have in encountering this Pasuk and the reason why it's brought here as a decisive source. But it's noteworthy that there are other interpretations among the Rishonim. Rashi himself on the Pasuk and Kohalos quotes uh, a number of interpretations. But one that's actually suggested by the language of the Tosefta in Megillah. Tosefta in Megillah quotes this Pasuk and also uses it to indicate such a preference. And there it focuses on the phrase, not necessarily to say that one's mortality should be the focus, but since this is ultimately what happens to everyone, if one hopes that when their time comes, they will be treated with proper respect, so therefore they're going to have to do it for others as well, which is evocative of a quote from Yogi Berra, who would say that, you should always go to other people's funerals or else they won't go to yours. So that idea is normally laughed at because it's impossible, that is the nature. But not only is it impossible, but we have an attitude in Chazal that emphasizes the opposite. And so it's a well-known Rashi in Parshas Vayichi, where there the Torah has the phrase Chesed Ve'emes, Chesed Shalemes, we adapted a little bit. And Rashi quotes the notion from the voracious Rabbah that the reason attending to a funeral is called a chesed shalemes is because you can't expect reciprocity. So it seems to be the opposite idea. It's notable that there's somewhat of a tension here. The Tosefta in the Gila does seem to indicate that that's a part of the motivation here. And here we have the idea that that's specifically something that is not available in the context of this chesed. It could be that it's a different kind of focus. It could be that what uh, Tosefta is getting at and the Rishonim who emphasize this, it could be that what they're saying is that it's a moral philosophical point, that if you expect that when your time comes, you want that everyone should be there to give you proper respect and to take care of what needs to happen, so then how could you not, in good conscience, be there for others when you see it being relevant then. Essentially, that's a principle of the Ahavta Kamocha. Not necessarily that you're looking for the payback, and that's the motive, but to work backwards and to recognize that if this is something that you think should be done for you, so therefore, morally, you believe that it should happen in general, and therefore, how could you not be there to provide for others? So some understand the idea of Zesov Kala Adam as pointing in that direction. It's also noteworthy that there's yet another interpretation of Kizesov Kaladam, and it's also indicated in Rashi from the Medrash Kohalas that the focus on saying this is the end of every person is to tell you, it's a very interesting idea, that regarding this mace, this is his end, and therefore you're not going to have any other opportunities to express chesed to him. And if we want to include this individual in the family of Klal Yisrael as the recipient of chesed, so this is the last opportunity. While if you miss the chasana, so they'll invite you to the bris, hopefully. Maybe there'll be other things that you can do for them. But as far as this individual who passed away, this is the last opportunity to perform a chesed for him. And in fact, there are those who understand that that's actually what chesed shalemis means. There are a range of other opinions that aren't quoted in Rashi and Vaiti, but the idea that this is your last chance to engage this individual in chesed 
and therefore it should take a priority for that reason. It's also a very striking idea. There are those also who say, I think this is a little bit what the Yisrael was alluding to, that there is a double chesed here, that one who attends to the needs of a funeral is helping both the mace and also the family. So there's two recipients. And that, therefore, should take greater priority than an act of attending a wedding which only benefits the living. So that, if that is indeed the thrust, so that could actually perhaps explain why the Rambam took the position that he did, because the Rambam in the adjacent halacha and Hilchas Evel reflects that attitude in a slightly different context. The Rambam talking about the idea of the mitzvah of Nichem Avelim, the Rambam says that Nichem Avelim is such an important mitzvah because it's a double chesed. Because it's a chesed emachayim and a chesed emamesim. You are helping two categories at once. Really, it's not just a question of counting up people, because who knows how that gets counted. But it's two categories. You're accomplishing something on behalf of the nifter and also accomplishing something on behalf of the survivors. He understands, based on the Gemara and Shabbos, that when one comes to be Menachem and Avel, so the spirit of the nifter is still present in the house, so you're doing something to honor the nifter at the same time. So therefore, Nicham Avelim is accomplishing both, and therefore the Rambam says, the Chiddush, he says, it appears to him that you should give a priority to Nicham Avelim over other chasadim, such as Bikr Cholim. And some of the commentaries on the side of the page, the Radbaz and others, they're very surprised by this because we have an attitude that Bikr Cholim can be literally life-saving, that the impact that one has on the Chola when you visit him is so significant that it's able to transform his condition and possibly save him. So the idea that Nicham Avelim would take priority over that is quite striking. You know, it's a, there's an effort in the Nosekelim to try to understand when that applies and why that applies, but it's a powerful statement from the Rambam that he does recognize this idea of two categories at once giving greater importance to this mitzvah, and maybe if that's the interpretation of the Pasuk some of the Rishonim have, that also can help us understand a part of the Rambam's attitude. So all of that plays a role in this machlokas in terms of how exactly to allocate the two sources, the Gemarring Subis that prefers the wedding, and these statements in Chazal elsewhere that seem to emphasize the Beis Ha'evel over the Beis HaMishtah. And there are other opinions also. The Shulchan Aruch seems to split the difference between the two because the Shulchan Aruch says the wedding itself takes priority over a funeral, but then after that all the other needs of an Avel and his family come before the needs of the wedding. So it's kind of an in-between position. But it's also notable there's a discussion in the Sheiltos, in Chaygon, in Sheilta Gimel, where he considers this issue also. And he discusses, so essentially, so what is the priority, let's say, between a wedding and a funeral? And he assesses it coming from the perspective of the severity of the mitzvah and the importance of the mitzvah. He says, on the one hand, so a wedding, a marriage is a very important mitzvah because that connects to Shabbos, to Puravu, to populating the world. And on the other hand, the idea of a funeral is also very powerful because we find that that can suspend Yisurim. He's talking about the fact that a Kohen normally is not permitted to come into contact with a mace, but if it's a mace mitzvah, if there's no one else who can take care of the needs of the funeral, so then the Kohen does do it, even though Kohen Gadol would do it. So we see that a funeral has this halachic power that it can override Yisurim, so maybe that should be more important. So he tries to decide, based on that, what's going to take priority, and ultimately he concludes with the Gemara. He says, since the Gemara in Ksuba says that we give priority to the Kala, so then that means also that the wedding should come first. That was the view the Sheiltos took. And the Nitziv, in his commentary there, has a lengthy discussion trying to understand the different possibilities, and he suggests that we could draw a distinction in a different way. That if it's a question between the two events, the wedding and the funeral, 
what's going to happen at all because you need the same people, let's say, to take care of one or the other, or it's a question of what's going to happen first. So then, indeed, the wedding should happen first because of this severity that comes with Puravu and Shavas, and therefore there's also an urgency to it. So if that's the question, so then the wedding should happen first. But if that's not the question, if both events have their own team, and they're all going to happen either way, and they're happening at the same time, and the question is, as a participant, what should you go to? So then you should focus on your midos and do that which will help your midos more. And the assumption apparently is, referring back to that pasuk, and the idea that there is a musr value in going to the Beis Evel, so therefore that should take priority if the events are happening one way or another, and it's just a question of what you should participate in. So far, so good? Everybody following? So that consideration especially, and that focus on what message is needed the most, it's instructive perhaps to think about the current climate and the current environment and just, indeed, what message is needed most. And to reflect for a moment that the theme of one's mortality and the need to be aware of that. So unfortunately, Am Yisrael has been reminded of its mortality collectively and individually in a way that is not precedented in the past several decades in an unfortunately, unbelievably severe way. But the themes of the wedding also have an important role to play right now as part of the overall picture. And it's also striking to consider that the whole notion of Simchas Chasim Bekala as a chesed is itself a somewhat surprising idea because it's really an outlier in the chesed list. All the other chasadim that we have, Bikracholim, Nicham Avelim, etc., all of them usually deal with somebody who's in a bad situation, who's disadvantaged somehow, they're poor, they're mourning, they're sick, whatever it is, and they need help, and therefore chesed is to come to their assistance. And simchas chasen and kala is an outlier, doesn't really fit in the group, because there you're dealing with a situation of people who are happy, and somehow your mitzvah is to help them in their good situation. So the idea of there being a mandate, of being a chesed, involved in Simchas Chas Mechala requires some explanation, and indeed the Svarim analyze it. And they note, among other suggestions, there are a few other points as well, but they note that the nature of human beings, a social animal, and especially Jewish human beings, are connected to others in a fundamental way, and cannot exist without that. So if one is looking to have their joyous wedding, it's impossible for that to happen without the involvement of those close to them. And if it were to happen that way, then that would contradict the nature of the joy that they are meant to be able to experience at that moment. So on the one hand, the whole mitzvah of Simchas Chasim Vakala itself is an emphasis on the intertwining of every Jew with each other, on the notion of the Jewish family, Davka, being there for each other for the sake of being there for each other, in a more focused way than all the other chasadim, because all the other chasadim are about being there and doing something else, being there with the chola and helping them, being there with the avel and comforting them. But the idea here seems to be that the emphasis is specifically on being there to share in the experience. And that itself is a very powerful message that we are seeing emerging now in a way that is incredibly striking and that has had a tremendous effect on all those who have witnessed it across the world. But, of course, also to focus on the notion, as the Sheolthos emphasized, the idea of Shavas, that the statement that's being made in the midst of an effort to wipe out the Jewish people, that not only are we not going to allow that to happen, but we are going to assertively and aggressively take steps towards the building of a new Jewish family, Davka, in the midst of that, 
is an incredibly powerful statement in and of itself. And as far as the message that Klai Yisrael needs at this time, and to consider this point, like the Nitziv said, that part of the calculation of how you allocate your attention in these contexts is after other factors are considered, what's going to have a greater impact on your psyche and your character. So yes, overall, to be reminded of mortality is important, but unfortunately now we have too much of that. And to be reminded also of the crucial integrity and the intertwining of the Jewish people and the interconnectedness of the Jewish people and of that push to keep on starting new Jewish families in a defiant act of refusal to be eliminated and to be exterminated is perhaps an even more crucial message right now. And perhaps that's a part of what the intuition of Kal Yisrael is putting forward at this time. And I think that's also something to think about. So just, does that make sense so far? Everybody with me? So just to, we have, I forgot, until four, a few more, okay, so a few minutes. So just to kind of emphasize also that idea of messages. So one of the themes I know, I think Rabbi Gottlieb told me, spoke recently about the question of negotiating for hostages and that, so just to talk about it for a moment philosophically and perhaps also to connect this to the previous point, that that notion is clearly one that causes great anguish and complexity of emotions to watch what's going on and to consider how to look at this whole picture halachically and strategically and hashkafically. And of course, first and foremost, we have to emphasize that none of us, especially not me coming from America, but even no, nobody here has the ability to judge and to assess this process. There's uh, so much going on that we don't know about, and even what we do know about, we can't uh, properly appreciate and weigh and to assess. So to talk about the subject while it's going on like this a little bit, uh, seems a little bit arrogant perhaps, a little bit out of place, but just to try to relate a little bit to some of the themes and perhaps also to get a message from that. So one of the things that I talk about in my college class, every Carrigan mentions each uh, class in this business school also, where we talk about morality and philosophy. So the process by which one makes moral decisions is a topic of debate among philosophers. And one distinction that's often drawn is there is what we call consequentialism and what we call formalism. There are other names for it also. But the idea of consequentialism is that one who's trying, they're both trying to be moral, they're both trying to do the right thing, but a consequentialist will make his decisions based on what brings about the best result. While a formalist has rules, and always lives by those rules without focusing on the result and without allowing the rules to be breached for a better result. It's often known as the question of, do the ends justify the means? That the consequentialist will take the position that the ends can often justify means that are otherwise questionable. And the formalist will say, no, the ends can't justify the means if the means are not legitimate. The means have to themselves be moral. So one example that's often given is, say, the question of lying. So the consequentialist will understand that normally he doesn't lie because overall deceiving people usually hurts them, usually creates problems, and therefore if you're looking to do the right thing, usually deceiving people is not going to be the right thing. But there are times when saying something untrue is going to be helpful to the person you're speaking to. You'll preserve their feelings or some other reason why it's beneficial. So in those circumstances, the consequentialist will say, okay, it's all right to lie, it's proper to lie in the circumstance because it'll bring the best result. We find the halacha backing that up also, and related sugyas. While a formalist will not lie ever, the extreme version, the Kantian version, he won't even lie even to save somebody's life because he lives his life by absolute rules. And lying is morally wrong, and therefore he will never do it. 
regardless of the consequences. He's not focusing on the consequences. He's focusing on rules. That's how he exists in a moral way. And no lying ever. So far, so good. Everybody with me? So what he suggested in class is that really the idea of formalism really can actually be broken up into two versions. So our two stadium here really are three. That a formalist could really be essentially a long-term consequentialist. That the reason one might live life by rules and not be willing to look at what's going on right now and what will bring about a better result is often because you actually are focused on consequences, but there's going to be overall bad consequences if we allow the rules to be compromised for the sake of what's going on right now. So therefore, yes, I agree with you that we should do what brings about a good result, but you're not going to have good results for very long if you don't allow the system to be maintained always. And another way of saying it, a different type of formalist, would be what we could call a values formalist. And a values formalist is simply not paying attention to consequences at all, whether because it's not their responsibility or it's not their right. We can't know what the consequences will be or simply because God runs the world and he didn't ask us to bring about good results. He asked us to follow the rules. And following the rules, perhaps, is a way of honoring values. So we don't lie because we honor the value of honesty. And we give staka because we honor the value of generosity and chesed. And we do what we do because we are living a life by a value system. And hopefully that will often correlate to good results, but that's beyond our ability to assess or our responsibility to assess. And the values formalist says, I live here for values. Okay, makes sense? So to illustrate those three possibilities, the past, we use the example the question of would you negotiate with terrorists in order to save hostages? So the consequentialist may say that, yes, I have to worry about what's going on right now. There's a hostage at risk, so you do what you need to do. And, yes, you negotiate in order to rescue this hostage. While the formalists of both types will presumably not negotiate with terrorists, but for two different reasons the long-term consequentialist formalist will say, yes, I want to save this hostage, but if I negotiate with the terrorists, then they're going to keep taking hostages, and in the very foreseeable long-term, they're going to have much worse results. So if I'm worried about consequences, then I have to expand my perspective here and recognize that I'm going to have bad consequences if I go down this path, and therefore, as a rule, no negotiating with terrorists. While the values formalist will say, for a different reason, he's not going to negotiate with terrorists, regardless of the consequences and regardless of whether it will bring about better results, but the premise being that terrorism is evil and to negotiate with a terrorist is to endorse evil and to validate it. And therefore, I'm not doing this no matter what results could possibly come from it. That's simply a betrayal of my whole moral system, my whole moral picture. So if we consider those three perspectives and we look at what's going on now, again, not for the purpose of judging or putting ourselves in the position of making the decision, which is beyond all of us, but just as far as trying to understand it. So it seems like we're dealing here with a purely consequentialist decision, that the formalists of both types would have a very hard time with this process Certainly, the long-term consequentialist formalist can very easily describe what bad consequences can come from such a deal. And, of course, unfortunately here, we don't even have to think very much. We know that the last trade released Sinwar. We know that the impact is clearly visible. And there are so many other ways in which we can imagine the, the release of dangerous criminals that at the same time also encourages the taking of further hostages, not hard to imagine how the long-term picture is highly complicated at best and certainly would point against such negotiations. But the values formalist would probably have an even greater objection. That here, what happened 
on Simchas Torah is the most egregious act of evil imaginable. And to act as if there's some kind of legitimate claim here that you can negotiate because it's like selling a purchase, selling an item that the owner actually has title to and can dictate terms seems like a validation of not only evil in general, but the most egregious, unimaginable evil that could happen. And to say, okay, that was a legitimate tactic, and now we can talk about what rights you have that come from that. So the values formalist think at, would have the most problem with this whole process. So it sounds like it's redeeming philosophy here, is consequentialism. Okay, but we have the immediate need to address the situation, and therefore that's leading the day. But even from a consequentialist perspective, it seems very, very shaky because the downsides and the pitfalls are so evident and so present that you don't need to be a long-term consequentialist in order to see them. The things that could go wrong and the problems that can emerge are right here in the present. So even the consequentialist analysis seems on the surface to also fall short. So perhaps what we're witnessing here actually goes back to the values formalism, but from the other direction. And that, yes, it's true that there is a values concern of appearing to endorse or to validate this act of indescribable evil, but there's another value statement at the same time. And that is that Klal Yisrael and Am Yisrael is expressing the value that it puts on every individual life. And perhaps even in light of its consequentialist weaknesses, that's the reason to move away from that as the explanation and say that, yes, there may be very imminently severe problems that could be so great they could outweigh the value that could come from this. But it's actually more about the statement than it is about even the short-term consequentialist gain but the recognition, A, of the value of every individual life, which is itself crucial to understand when considering broader issues of war. And this is also something I just wanted to kind of at least allude to in the time that we have, that war, by its nature, has to come from consequentialist considerations. And just to very briefly allude to this, much longer discussion, but we find that a part of the question of how to assess war, and it's very relevant to the question of civilian casualties and to what extent can somebody who's not actually threatening you personally be a part of the action taken. So when you're dealing with a rodef as an individual, so then one's permitted to kill a rodef, but not anyone who's not threatening them. And anyone who's not threatening them would be subject to a rule of Yehari Valyavor. You're not allowed to take any action against the person who's not threatening. But when you have a paradigm of Mohamba, a paradigm of war, so then the rules shift, and it's more legitimate to include the broader population. Not because they can be indiscriminately killed, but because it's a different paradigm now, and war has a different focus. A question about that? What's your name? Bob yeah. Azaria. Azaria. Yes. So fundamentally, how could a, how does a values formalist, um, I guess, measure two absolute values against each other? Oh, there yeah. are two values that are in contradiction. So that's a great question because the I want to address that, but I'll always finish this point. I'll come back to it because I think there's something we do have to appreciate about that. That's an important question which often gets missed. So we'll, let's come back to that in a second. But this issue of how exactly to look at the, the value of human life here and to recognize that perhaps there is a statement that's being made here. So when we look at the question of war, so war seems to shift the paradigm and to allow for killing even of those who are not directly threatened, which was also a part of, for example, this week's Parsha. So in this week's Parsha, we read two iterations of this, at least according to some of Mepharshim, now we read, Vayira Yaakov that Yaakov was concerned about encountering and confronting Esav because, I have a few more minutes? Now, is that, uh, well, what, 
lost. Okay, so it'll just take a few more minutes that Yaakov was both scared and concerned about encountering Esau. And Rashi tells us that he's concerned because he may die, and he's anguished because he may have to kill others. So the Baliatosis asks a question, it's a little bit of a funny question. Well, why should he worry about that if we have a principle of Rodef and somebody who is pursuing you, you have the right to kill. So if he killed anybody, it would be justified. So what's he worried about? So the questions always seem a little strange because I think we understand that even if it's justified and necessary, so no Jew is going to want to kill someone else. So even if that is the only call, but still something that would be very horrible to have to do that personally, to do that at all. So the idea that that should anguish him, I think, is understandable. But there's an additional answer they point to, which is probably related, that maybe he would make the wrong call, that maybe he might kill somebody unjustifiably, and maybe that was his concern. But the truth is they're really interrelated, that either the concern of a mistake, or even not of a mistake, but simply the idea of killing someone at all, is going to be a very difficult thing to have to consider, and therefore the idea that Yaakov should have anguish from that possibility is understandable. But it's also noteworthy that later on in the Parsha, so we find that Shimon and Levi engaged in this act of killing the whole city of Shechem, and the Rambam and the Ramban have a major machlokis how to understand what's going on and whether and to what reason there's a justification here. The Rambam thought it was an expression of the mitzvah of Din. The Ramban disagreed with that for several reasons, but among them the fact that it doesn't seem like they did the right thing because Yaakov's very upset. Maral of Prague adds the idea there that they perceive this as a warfare framing rather than as an individual situation. So being that they saw it through that framework, so they felt that the whole city of Shechem was a threat to them because of this bold act that one was willing to do. It must be that there's a possibility of open warfare between them. So therefore they understood it in that context and considered it legitimate to wage war, essentially, against that city. So this framework that Mohammed changes things, as Maral also notes, is presumably relevant to Yaakov also, and therefore just adding another layer to that question of why should he be concerned if the warfare is indeed legitimate, and again provoking kind of the same answer, that yes, it can be legitimate, but it doesn't absolve us of the need to worry about, first of all, that everything should be carried out properly, and even when it is carried out properly, what are the effects of that? They can both coexist at the same time. But the idea that war is different so why should war be different? You know, what is it that makes the decisions there legitimate that wouldn't otherwise be legitimate if an individual was doing it? So how come we would say that if someone is allowed to kill a rodef but not anyone else in the way because of the hard valyavor, but when it's war, we call it mochama, so then that changes the rules. So why does it change the rules? So the more intuitive understanding is that it's because the paradigm shifts from dealing with individuals to dealing with collectives. So now we're still using the language of pikuach nefesh and rodef and related concepts, but we're not looking at individuals, we're looking at entities, we're looking at national identities, and therefore that changes the analysis. But I think also there's an added element here, that when we consider this whole idea of formalism and consequentialism, so Yaharik Valyavor essentially is a formalist rule, essentially is saying that there are things that you're not allowed to violate even if it otherwise makes sense. Even if it otherwise adds up to bring you a better consequence, you're not allowed to violate that. And murder in general is looked at halachically and otherwise, both formalistically, as an absolute rule, Yaharik Valyavor, and also consequentially the fact that it brings about such a terrible consequence and therefore has to be avoided for that reason. So perhaps a part of the issue here is that when you have a mochama consideration, so then it becomes much more reasonable and perhaps much more necessary to use consequentialist thinking. But it's one thing to say that an individual should be most nefesh al-Kiddush Hashem, that an individual has absolutes and cannot violate his moral code for anything. 
But when you're dealing with a collective and a nation at war, it becomes necessary to think consequentially because you're dealing essentially with the existence of the whole society. So, for example, there are Rishonim who say, in the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Dafayin Dalid, which asks how could Esther do what she did at the time of Purim, given that some of it seemed to be a violation of Yisurim that were Heru Vayavur. So some of the Rishonim say that saving Klal Yisrael is different than the normal calculations you might have. So when you're dealing with a threat against your whole nation, essentially an existential threat against everyone, so then it becomes more necessary to look at things from a consequentialist perspective. So that is indeed the case, that war necessarily is a consequentialist endeavor. That war has to be done through calculating numbers and emotionless attitude of just adding up costs and benefits and collateral damage and things such as that, it's a necessary aspect of what war is. But at the same time, it has to have that value at its core, that the idea that it's about the sanctity of an individual human life is the starting point. And once you acknowledge that, then you can make the numbers decisions that a consequentialist is going to bring to the table in the context of war. But it's only worth waging a war to save a million people if one person is infinitely valuable. Once you acknowledge that one person is infinitely valuable, then we can start analyzing, okay, this will save a million lives, this will cost a hundred lives, this will have this effect, this will have that effect. So it has to start from that acknowledgement. So perhaps what we see here is the instinct of Jewish society, Israeli society, to say that, yes, we have such reverence for any one human life that we're willing to go all out and even make highly questionable decisions because that is the starting point that drives everything else. And together with that, yes, is also a responsiveness to the emotional state of everyone who is a part of the story, and that's also a part of the basic humanity, but it contributes also, again, to that picture that there is a fundamental value here, and that value is being upheld as a fundamental framework for everything else, even if there are a lot of details that may indeed call that decision into question. But starting from where we came from, we said that things such as going ahead with marriages at this time is itself a value statement that can have untold benefits for our society as a whole. So having a statement such as this of just how far the society is willing to go to value every individual life that itself can have a tremendous effect on the psyche and the mentality of the Jewish people and their army. And that itself should bring about Yeshua's as well. So I'll just close by noting, as I know I'm over time, say one thing about Hanukkah, but it'll take a second, that we find a halacha in Hanukkah, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, which is very surprising because it seems to defy the rule we read about sort of in last week's parsha. The Gemara says that based on last week's parsha, you're not supposed to spend too much money on mitzvos. You're not supposed to spend more than a fifth of your money because of Asera Asrenu. So the Rambam nonetheless rules that when it comes to Ner Hanukkah, such a dear mitzvah, Chavivi Had Ma'od, you have to do whatever it takes. You have to spend all of your money. And if you don't have enough money, show up Mocher Ksusa. You knock down doors, knock on doors, you sell your clothes, do whatever it takes in order to have enough to fulfill this mitzvah. So it's a big question. If you normally don't have to spend more than a fifth of your money on mitzvahs, mitzvahs men Torah, like Tzvillin or Lulav, you don't have to spend more than a fifth of your money. So how come when it comes to a mitzvah der Rabbanan, like Hanukkah candles, you have to go all out? So the Magad Mishnah says on the side of the page, because it's Pursume Nisa. But that doesn't answer the question. It just recategorizes the question. Okay, so Pursume Nisa mitzvahs, which are der Rabbanan, still you have to go all out. Why do you have to go all out? So Rav Soloveitchik explained, with Shachter, from quotes from Soloveitchik, that Pursuminisa is a type of tefillah, that we're saying that we had miracles in the past and we want miracles again in the future. And therefore, if we're asking a Kaddish Baruch Hu to go out of his budget, so to speak, he normally says, normally he does, he runs the world up, and here we're saying to go above and beyond. So it's a little incongruous to say, and in order to make that point, we've allocated exactly 19.9% of our budget and no more. So if we want God to go above and beyond, we need to also go above and beyond. 
So essentially to recognize that Hanukkah, as it comes up now, is a way of expressing our gratitude for miracles in the past, and we look for miracles in the future. This time when Am Yisrael needs those miracles as much as ever, and to recognize one of those essential miracles is that Masarta Giborim Biad Khaloshim Barabim Biad Ma'atim and that God indeed allowed the Ma'atim to prevail. And now, for whatever reason, the world has an upside down view and they think that the Jewish army here is the Rabbim and the enemy is the Ma'atim. But we know that really it's very much the other way around, and especially because of the role the attitudes of the world play in this whole battle, it's actually quite the other way around, and the Jewish people continue to be the Ma'atim who are fighting the Rabbim. And to that extent, if we are Mefarsim the Nase of Hanukkah to ask for more miracles, we once again ask that Uzman HaHadeh as well, Akash Baruch Hu should continue to help us. He should make sure that the Ma'atim prevail over the Rabbim. He should mean miracles once again. And through that, we should all be Zochah to see Nisim and Yeshua in the month of Kislev.